All right. Well, thank you, Brother Song, and thank you for uh, your many years of faithful service and helping spearhead uh, our partnership with Bethesda as well. Uh, well, good morning, church. It's good to be here with you, especially for those of you who are uh, able to be here in person. It's really good uh, to be able to worship with you this morning. And for those of you who, uh, it seems like the majority of us are not here in person, but nonetheless, we miss you and we hope to see you as soon as possible, Lord willing. And so, uh, with the start of a new year, as you may have noticed, and as was mentioned in previous weeks, we are starting a new sermon series. And so we're going to be focusing on the lives of Elijah and Elisha, as recorded for us in the books of First and Second Kings. And let me just briefly take a moment to explain why the pastors felt led to study uh, the lives of these two prophets at this particular time in the life of our church. Uh, first of all, Elijah and Elisha served as prophets during the 9th and 8th century BC. It was the time where the kingdom had split into two between the northern kingdom called Israel consisting of 10 tribes and then the southern kingdom consisting of two tribes called, uh, referred to as the kingdom of Judah. So Elijah and Elijah were active in the northern kingdom. That's where they were doing their prophetic ministry. It was a time of great apostasy when the nation, both kings and, and commoners alike, were worshiping and serving the gods of the nations. And so simply put, it was very rare to find people who were wholeheartedly committed to Yahweh. Likewise, I think you and I live in a time and in a place where faith in the Lord is increasingly rare. There are certainly overt atheists who deny the possibility of God's existence altogether. But then there are a lot of folks who are just religious, but don't consider Christ to be the Lord. And then there are those who profess the name of Jesus, but like the people of Elijah and Elisha's time, they try to blend the worship of God with the worship of other gods. Syncretism. Their devotion to Christ, in other words, is compromised to allegiances to other things, allegiances to money, power, nationalism. But as Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You will either love the one or hate the other. These are the times you and I are living in where it seems more and more rare to find those who are wholeheartedly committed to Yahweh as it was in Elijah and Elisha's time. So we've entitled this series, Belief in a Time of Unbelief. And our hope and prayer is that we'd be able to glean much from studying a time in the history of redemption that parallels our own time in various ways. Furthermore, given the number and complexity, the breadth and depth of the problems we've faced and continue to face all around us individually and corporately, perhaps you're feeling your weakness. Perhaps you're feeling your limitations in a more profound way than you ever have. But such seasons of life, though they're hard, can actually be 
beautiful can actually be a wonderful and freeing time. Because it's when we've been brought to the end of our own strength and see the extent of our own limitations that we're in a position to begin to experience the limitless mercy, the limitless strength, the limitless grace of our God. And so through the lives of these two men, we are confronted time and time again with just how awesome our God truly is. It's especially in times where the problems around us seem so very big and seem so plentiful that we need to see how our God is in fact so much bigger and His power unlimited. And our hope again in prayer through this series is is that it will help us in that way. Not only for your own comfort, but so that we might offer this hope and this comfort to an unbelieving world, that they too might find the same comfort and hope that is found in Christ alone. So I'm excited to dive into this study, and we're just going to jump right into this first passage, all of chapter 17 today. And there are three big truths that this text confronts us with. We see the true and living God, that He is the true provider, and that His Word is true. Okay, so those three things. We see the true and living God, that He is the true provider, and that His Word is true. But before we dive into those things, can I invite us to bow one more time in a word of prayer? Lord, indeed, you are the true and living God. You're present with us now as we are here as a gathered community. And you're present with those who have put their trust in you, even though they might be scattered at this time throughout the city in different homes. But nonetheless, you are with your people as you promised you would be. God, we live in a time right now where the challenges we face are real challenges. I especially think of the many people in our church who are in health care, just exhausted by continuing to deal with this pandemic. I think of our many teachers who are utterly depleted, having to navigate these unique and difficult times. And all of us really just struggling in different ways. Lord, the problems we're facing just seem so very real. So real, in fact, that they seem more real than you. And this is why we need the Sabbath day. To rest our souls, to rest our hearts in you and in your truth. So would you open our eyes once again to the reality of who you are. And that we might live our lives in light of that reality, the truth of the God that we cannot see, instead of living our lives by sight and by what we see, teach us to live by faith, by what is unseen. Help us by your Spirit. Bless the teaching and preaching of your word, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, the true and living God. If you were to read through from the chapter 1 of 1 Kings, you'd see that after the reign of Solomon, 
The nation is in steady decline, and not just in political terms, but in spiritual decline. Things are just going from bad to worse. And then we come to chapter 16, right before our passage today, verse 30. We're introduced to King Ahab, and and we read, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Verse 31, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Verse 33, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. He's famous for the wrong reasons. Then in chapter 17, Elijah seems to appear out of nowhere. But it signals that God, of course, was well aware of all that was happening, and he was about to do something about it. And so Elijah appears before Ahab and says to him, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And just as suddenly as he appears in the text, he suddenly departs from Ahab's presence as God directs him to. Now that sudden departure is not only for Elijah's safety from the murderous rage of Ahab and his wife Jezebel, right? It was kind of like God's witness protection program, but it was also a form of judgment, Because you see, Elijah as prophet delivered the very word of God. And so Elijah's physical absence signified the absence of the word of God. And when God's word is absent, there's darkness. There is only lostness. Romans chapter 1 describes this dynamic of how God by giving up humanity to our own desires to, in other words, let us live however we want to live is actually a form of judgment. For God to say, have it your way, is actually a form of judgment because our way only leads to deeper misery and death. This is why C.S. Lewis famously said he described hell. He described hell as God saying to us, thy will be done. Fine, you don't want my will to be done? Then have it your way. Thy, lowercase t, thy will be done. Now, Elijah's declaration to Ahab that there would be no rain or even dew except for at Elijah's word might seem a little random to us, right? The whole scene is a little random. He appears out of nowhere, goes to Ahab and says, there's not going to be any rain or dew, and then he just leaves. Everything seems a bit random, But you see, Ahab and the people of his time would have understood this for what it was. God speaking through Elijah was making a very clear challenge. Because you see, Baal, who Ahab and Israel began to worship, was believed to be the God of weather and fertility. He was, in fact, referred to as the rider of the clouds and was portrayed with a lightning bolt in his hand. He was believed to be the one who controlled the rain. And by controlling the rain in an agrarian society where you're literally living off the land, he controlled life itself. And so by withholding the rain, 
God was demonstrating that he and he alone was in control, not Baal. And each episode that follows in, our, in this passage deals with some particular problem or human need that's supposed to be within Baal's control, that's supposed to be Baal's area of expertise, but God shows again and again and again that Baal has no real control at all because Baal, after all, isn't real himself. He's made up. He's a figment of their imagination. There is only one true and living God, the God of Israel, Yahweh. So let me show you what I mean when I talk about uh, each episode proving that Baal is no real God at all. We're going to just survey each episode. Then later we're going to circle back and we'll look at each episode in detail. But I just want to quickly walk through and show you what I'm talking about. After the declaration of no rain, Elijah's led to this place of wilderness. It's not supposed to be a place where there's food and water, but God literally leads him to a brook and then miraculously provides food for him there, where it's not supposed to be. Then he sent to a widow in Zarephath. Now, not only was Zarephath outside of the borders of Israel, it was actually the center, the heartland of the worship of Baal. That's where it came from. That's where it originated. That was the heartland. So, in other words, on Baal's home turf, on Baal's home turf in a time of famine, which was due, in fact, to the very judgment of God who's withholding the rain. In that place, God miraculously provides for a widow and her son when Baal could not. Baal is embarrassed. He's put to shame on his own home turf. Kind of like the Eagles last night, but that's okay. Meaningless game. Through this, the Lord proves he's not just the God of Israel, restricted to Israel's borders. He's Lord over all the earth, the true and living God. Later, the widow's son dies. And through Elijah's prayer, the boy who died is brought back to life. According to ancient mythology, the actual crop cycle was tied to Baal's life cycle. So the belief was that Baal, every year, he would be defeated by the god of death, whose name was Mot. So each year, Baal himself would actually succumb to death. And when he died, that's why the crops would die, and that's why the land would be unproductive. But then through the help of his companion god named Anat, he would be revived. He would return victorious in the autumn. And so the fall rains signified that Baal was alive again. And this is what they believed. And so you see, as powerful as Baal was believed to be, even he himself succumbed to death. He himself, at every year, succumbed to death. But in the resurrection of the boy... The God of Israel proves he's the one who has complete control over not only life, but even death itself. Who controls the rain? 
Who supplies our deepest needs? Who has control over life and death itself? Only the true and living God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, who is the great I Am. And centuries later, Jesus Christ, John chapter 858, describes how Jesus said of himself, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And it sounds like Jesus is struggling with his grammar there and his tenses, but it's not the case at all. What that is, is actually a revelation. Jesus is claiming himself to be Yahweh. And so the simple point being this, for those who have trusted Christ, this is the same God we worship. He's the same God who continues to reign supreme. He's not bound by seasons. He's not bound by borders, but he lives and he reigns supreme even now. And this is, the, this is all I want to say under this first point, and it's a simple point, but perhaps it's a very timely point. Because in some ways, life kind of feels like for a lot of us, things have just gone from bad to worse. But not only is God in aware of what's happening, he's in full control. And so if I could just give this simple but poignant reminder, and part of the beauty of the Sabbath is that we do just this. We come into the presence of God together, and collectively we heed the call of God that says, be still and know that I am God. We might be panicking. We might be utterly confused. We might be at our wits end. But would you, friends, brothers and sisters, hear God's comfort to you this morning? Be still. And preach that to your own heart. Be still. Know that he is God. Second, the true provider. After declaring there's going to be no rain, the Lord directs Elijah to go to Kerith. In verse 4, he says, I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. And then verse 6 describes how ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. This is the 9th century B.C. version of Grubhub. Eventually, however, because of the lack of rain, the brook dries up. He doesn't have any water anymore. So God instructs Elijah to go to Zarephath, where he would be provided for by this widow. But we find out in verse 12, she's so destitute, she's so poor, that she only had a handful of flour and some oil in a jug. And what a sad scene this is because she's, in fact, gathering some sticks, preparing to basically cook the last meal she will ever eat with her son before they die of starvation together. Yet, Elijah declares in verse 14, the jar of flour shall not be spent. And the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And just as God promised, each day there was provision there. It lasted as long as it needed. Every time they put their hand in the jar, there was enough for the day. 
Now, Elijah was not in the wilderness of Kareth because he wanted to go there, because he just wanted to rough it for a few days. He wanted to live a simpler life. It's not why he's there. He wasn't in Zarephath just hanging out with this random widow and her son because it was his idea. He was in these places he would not have normally been only because... He was faithfully heeding the call of God upon his life. That's it. And in so doing, because that was his posture of going wherever the Lord called him to go, doing whatever the Lord had for him, the Lord promised, and he did, provide every need. And friends, he does the same for all who heed his call and wholeheartedly follow. There are times where God may call you somewhere or to something or to someone you may not normally choose to go to or perhaps not prefer to go to, at least at first. But you can certainly know that as you go forth in faithfulness, healing the Lord's call upon your life, He will provide what you need. As the famous missionary Hudson Taylor said, God's work done in God's way will never lack supply. God's work done in God's way will never lack supply. God's provision may come in completely unexpected ways, right? Ravens were ceremonial, ceremonially unclean according to the Jewish law. Elijah would have never saw that coming. Eat from this, whatever this bird brings you, this unclean animal. In a time without social security, social services, where women were completely dependent on their husbands to be a widow would mean you are essentially destined to a life of poverty. Which is why throughout the scriptures, there's this constant call to take care of widows and orphans. And so can you imagine the confusion of Elijah when he heard it's going to be a widow who supplies his needs? How unexpected and confusing is that? Wait, God, she's the one that probably needs my help. Nonetheless, God's provision oftentimes come in ways we don't expect We don't see coming. It may come in ways you don't prefer. Would you want to eat food dropped off by birds? It was meat. But who knows what kind of meat? Where is this meat from? The Lord would probably rebuke me for being too hung up on that. Like, God, what what kind of meat is this? (laughs) Just eat it, son. (laughs) But hey, it's not what he may have preferred, but the provision was there. It might not be what he would have expected, but the provision was there. Sometimes it was plentiful, day and night, meat and bread and water. Other times it was just enough. Just enough. The jar. It's never empty, but there's just enough. You can be sure that when you heed the call of God... He will provide for every need as you heed that call. 
I have my own catalog of testimonies. Just re-encouraged as I was meditating on this text. Just affirming this truth in my own life over and over and over again. At times it came in the way of material provision. For those long-termers at Renewal, you may remember this story that I've shared in the past of being in seminary and not knowing how I was going to get to and fro in the city, serving in the city, but then school out in the burbs, and my car broke down, transport was an issue. I didn't personally have any money to buy a car, and unsolicited. I didn't ask him. I hadn't talked to this person in years, but this cousin of mine, who I hadn't seen or talked to in years, unsolicited, unexpected, sends me a check for $10,000. My mom just calls me out of the blue. Check came in the mail for you. From who? I haven't seen him in years. And with that, I was able to purchase a car to get to and from seminary. I think of God's call upon my wife and my family to root ourselves here in West Philly as close as possible to the church. I felt that strong sense of conviction and call to be a presence in this community and to lead the way for our church to be a presence in the community. Living here was so important, and I believe this is what God desired, and we had such a hard time finding a home, and even back then, uh, 11 years now, the prices were really out of our range. Unsolicited, unexpected, a group of friends consisting of Renewal people chip in a very generous gift in order to help us afford a house. Even recently, you've heard me mention our home renovation. We could have moved, but out of that same conviction of wanting to stay as rooted as possible on the block we've been on for 10 years, he said, God, we really feel like we want to stay, but we feel like in many ways we've outgrown this house It would be really nice to renovate. And again, unexpected, unsolicited, an old friend reconnects and we find a way to renovate our house, not only in a way that serves my family as a better space for my family, but a better space to host. Beyond just these types of examples, time and time again, as I've heeded God's call to follow his lead, he has provided strength. I mean, you've heard me mention this as well. This has been a season of great depletion for me. Just feeling depleted in so many ways. And at times, frankly, severe discouragement. But I have learned the truth and reality of God's moment-by-moment grace in very real ways. Just the other day, I was sitting at my desk. I don't know what it was. And I wonder if some of you have just been praying for me. And if you have, thank you. But without any rhyme or reason, really, I just felt a renewed sense, just this renewed stirring of gratefulness to be in the ministry, of love for my church, of a longing to continue to pour my life out for all of you as much as I can, as God enables me. See, that's his provision of spiritual strength. Filling my heart with the love that I need to shepherd and to continue to be a faithful witness. Time and time again, I've known this to be true. A friend of mine, Dr. Bill Moore, shared this 
as well, but he's a, he's a friend I've met through the city. And by the way, that's one of the ways that God has really provided for me. By unexpected connections, I formed a real strong friendship with pastors across different denominations in this city. There's a group of about five of us. We meet every other week, virtually, sometimes in person, to simply pray for each other and then pray for our city and for the gospel to advance powerfully in our city in word and in deed. And that too has been such a source of strength, refreshment to my soul. And one of the connections I've made, Dr. Bill Moore, 10th um, Memorial Church here in, in 10th Memorial, not 10th for us, 10th Memorial Church. Um, it's over towards more close to North Philly. He says, if it's God's will, God's got the bill. If it's God's will, if it's something God's calling you to, he'll provide what you need. God's got the bill. For others of us, perhaps there's a word of challenge here as well. And the question is, do you play it so safe? Do you approach your life not saying, whatever you will, God, thy will be done, but basically just calling your own shots in life without a second thought, just whatever you want, whatever you desire, whatever your own wishes are, and in so doing, you never put yourself in a place to experience such testimonies, to experience such an experience of the real power and provision of God. If I could encourage you, genuinely have that posture of heart that says, Lord, I heed your call. Wherever, whenever, however, to whomever, I'm your servant. And do so not simply because then you'll get to have some neat testimonies, which you will. But more importantly, as you live in such a way, that's where you're going to experience the abundant life of Christ found in him that he promised. That life, which is not an easy life, but it's an abundant life. And it's a far more substantial and meaningful life than you can create for yourself. As Jim Elliott, who was martyred on January 8th, don't know if you're aware, but we just, they just commemorated his, his martyrdom. It was yesterday. Jim Elliott, martyr, January 8th, 1956, along with a group of other missionaries, young missionaries, who were basically trying to bring the gospel to Ecuador and were speared to death. He famously said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Finally, the word of truth. His word is true. One of the prevailing themes of this text is the truthfulness and trustworthiness of God's word. Over and over in our text, we read everything happened just as the Lord said it would. The rain was held by Elijah's word, right? He says, based on my word, this rain, it's not going to rain again until I say so. But Elijah's words weren't powerful in and of themselves because of Elijah. 
His word only had authority because it was, he was delivering God's word. Just yesterday, my boys playing video games for a good portion of the afternoon, and my wife and I always try to have limits for their own mental health. And so Lily happened to be right next to me, my now three-year-old daughter, and I said, Lily, go tell your brothers no more video games. So she said, sure. She runs down to the basement door, and she says, boys, video games off now, boys. And then it's kind of, you know, they're clearly ignoring her. And I said, Lily, say that daddy said so. She goes, boys, dad says so. And then you hear all this rustling, and then they come upstairs. Now, she probably power tripped and thought, yeah, but <laughs> Lily's word, to them at least, doesn't have authority. It's dad says so. That's why they listen. Elijah as prophet, where does authority come from? Not from himself. It's because he delivers the word of God, the true authority. The word of the Lord said, it's not going to rain. This is the word Elijah delivers. And so it didn't in accordance with the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Elijah telling him to go to Kareth, again, that God would provide food and water there. And sure enough, in accordance with the word of the Lord, food and water was there. Then the word of the Lord came to him and he was instructed to go to Zarephath. And then the widow would provide, the jar and flour would not be spent, and the jug of oil would not go empty. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened according to the word of the Lord. You see, each step of the way, Elijah exhibits faith, trusting in the word of the Lord, that God would say what he said he would do. So not only is he a spokesperson of God's word, he himself had faith in that word. God's going to do what he said he would do. The woman of Zarephath also exhibited faith, trusting the God of Elijah would do what he said he would do. I mean, think about it. I'm sure it was hard for Elijah to ask the woman to share her last bit of food with him. Can you imagine how difficult and awkward that must have been? This widow basically says, I'm collecting sticks to make my last meal so my son and I can go die and then say, well, can you make me a cake? I mean, the awkwardness of that. Must have been hard for him to do that. But how much harder, how much harder it must have been for this poor widow with her son in mind to give up that last, that last portion to this random man. But she does so because she genuinely believes God's word is true. But in the final episode, both the widow's faith and Elijah's faith would be tested when the widow's son dies. Immediately, the widow assumes, as we read in verse 18, it's because of her sin. That's what she thinks the cause is. Because of her sin that her son dies. That it's some kind of punishment. But even Elijah is confused as to why this is happening. He himself is shocked. Look at verse 20. He cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? There's a sense of conflict and confusion in there in Elijah as well. 
Perhaps you've been there too, where the Lord seems to have done some kind of great work in your life, some encouraging work in your life, something positive has happened, something to be celebrated. But then it's immediately followed by a gut punch. A punch in the gut of hardship, suffering, loss. And you too begin to wonder if it's some kind of punishment for something you did wrong. But you see, this passage shows us there's often way more to the story of our lives than we're aware of. Again, to remind you, in the big picture, there's this basically cosmic confrontation going on as God is exposing the impotence of Baal to prove that he's no God at all, and her life is swept up in that. Furthermore, God was foreshadowing the day when faith in the true and living God would no longer be confined to the borders of Israel, but would go forth to all the nations. For the widow, by faith, she witnessed her son being spared from death through the miraculous provision of food. But now, God was going to show her an even greater work. Not only witnessing the sparing of her son from death, but witnessing the rising from death of her son. And how does this happen? Elijah himself was, again, puzzled as well. But the reason he was puzzled was because God had already said that the widow and her son and Elijah would be provided for until the rain came. That was the direct promise. But the rains hadn't come yet. And therefore, Elijah reasoned, this can't be the end. You just promised this oil and flour will sustain us till the rain end. Why would you have this kid die right now when you literally just promised until the rains come where our lives will be sustained? And so he begins to pray for the boy because this contradicts what he knew God already said. And so he prays for the boy, stretching himself out three times over the deceased boy. And no one knows exactly what that signifies, but it seems to indicate some kind of identification with the boy, right? He takes the same exact posture as the boy, as if he's identifying with the boy in death. And then in verse 22, we read, And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And then Elijah brings the boy to the widow and says, See, your son lives. And the woman says, Now I know you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. You see, this woman had already exhibited faith, right? She believed the whole account of the jug and the flower, and she already exhibited faith. But she is now confronted in such a way that her faith is being tested and brought into an even deeper faith. And the same also holds true for Elijah. 
by being born, uh, brought to this point of confusion and desperation and crying out in faith, he himself walks away with an even greater faith and testimony of the power and faithfulness of God, which is going to equip him well because he's got a huge battle coming up ahead next week. But this account also foreshadows for us the day when an even greater prophet, the Word who became flesh, would stretch himself out, not simply symbolically, and not simply symbolically entering death, but literally. Jesus Christ upon the cross stretched himself out, entered death, on Satan's home turf, as it were, that home turf being death itself, Jesus broke the power of sin and its resulting curse, which is death. Jesus could have come as a prosecutor like Elijah to Ahab, calling him judgment upon him. But Jesus came as a mediator like Elijah, crying out that we might live. So that through his life, death, and resurrection on our behalf, he could say to the Father, Look, your sons live, your daughters live. So, in closing, friends, may this passage lead us to lead us to actually slow down and pause. Before trying to answer this question as we go through life, why is this happening to me? For as we see with this woman who assumed it was some wrong of hers, it wasn't about that at all. God was doing a myriad of things she was completely unaware of. And so pause, slow down. Don't be so quick to try to look for this answer for yourself or as you come along others in their suffering and trying to say, this is why it's happening. Because there are a myriad of purposes God could be working out that are way beyond our understanding. And prematurely speculating can often do more harm than good. You can be a poor counselor like one of Job's friends. Instead, when faced with the perplexing and even upsetting situation in your life, as Elijah did, as Elijah did, cling to the truth and promises God has already given. There's going to be a lot of things you go through and you're not clear as to why. Don't spend time sitting there trying to speculate why. Instead, cling to. Instead of speculating, meditate. Don't speculate. Meditate on the truth, on the promises God has already given, already made clear, and respond and live out of that. Even when those promises and truths seem to contradict what your eyes see. Nonetheless, faith resolves to say, in spite of how this appears, here's what God has promised. Here's what is, what is true. 
And his word is always true. And the intent of his heart, he proved true. When he stretched out his arms on the cross, all that he does for you is all love. The punishment was already poured out on Jesus for our sake. Now all that he does for you, it's all love. And there are times where he legitimately disciplines us as a father or mother in love needs to sometimes discipline erring children. But it's love. It's not wrath and punishment. It's love. It's corrective to lead you to life. So may the Lord enable us to look to his word, the word of the true and living God, and know his promises are trustworthy and true. And whatever he calls you to as you step forth in obedience in those ways, know that he's going to provide all that you need to be faithful. Let's bow. Again, God, we thank you. We give you praise, true and living God, the only one worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. Lord, we confess the ways in which so often we live as functional atheists, as if the problems around us are more real than you are, are bigger than you. We confess the ways in which we often confess you with our mouth and yet hedge our bets by looking to other sources to put our trust in, oftentimes trusting ourselves over you. But Lord, we thank you for your patience and grace. We thank you for your truth, your word, that reveals what is true, that reveals that you are true, and that you are trustworthy. It reveals just how limited and weak and deserving of judgment we are, but it also shows us how gracious, how merciful you are, and how you took that judgment upon yourself through those outstretched arms. Thank you, Jesus, for your great love for us. And I pray that each of my friends here, my brothers and sisters who are tuning in, my friends tuning in, help the God of Elijah become more and more real to us with each passing day. Help us to cling to your word, even when life and the circumstances we face seem to contradict what you say about yourself. Would you well up within us greater faith so that we too would walk by faith more and more not by sight, and walk into the abundant life you have for us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's rise and close in this song.